Blog Talk Radio. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk the podcast. It is cold and it is rainy <laughs> on my Friday morning. I don't know what day it is or what time of day or how the weather is where you are, but I'm just giving you a little insight into what's going on here. But I'm still really, really excited about this show. Today's going to be a different kind of show. Instead of taking one question or one topic and spending the whole 45 minutes to an hour on that, which is absolutely necessary for so many of the things that we talk about on here, I, got, I put together three or four little topics, or what I hope <laughs> I can shorten or don't go off on my little, you know, tangents or whatever, and and be sure to get all of these answered. So that's what we're doing today. So we've got, again, kind of a hodgepodge. They're not even all connected. They're just questions that people have sent me. Remember, if you're on my email list a couple of weeks ago, I sent out a request for any questions. And, boy, I got so many responses to that. And so by doing some of these shows, by combining questions, I hope that I can get to things that everyone sent in. And if you're still wanting to do that, it's not that period is not over. The window has not closed. You can always send me this. Just send it to Laura at teachmetotalk.com and put in your subject line a question for the podcast, and that will help me flag it and pull it out of the thousands and thousands of emails that we get every week at teachmetotalk.com. All right, so let's start with the first one. And this really isn't a question. This is a follow-up from a mom, but I thought it was such a great point and such a great um, que- not question, but such a great point of view from a mom. And she, let me just read it instead of trying to explain it. Let me just read it and you'll understand. She says, I'm a huge fan of your show. Thank you so much for always taking the time to make insightful podcast episodes for those of us who are not speech pathologists. I've been implementing a lot of the material I've been getting from your show with my toddler. She's three and she's currently getting speech therapy two times a week. And she goes on to say that she listened to the most recent podcast, which was last week, and it was today's show number 330, so it was show 329. If you haven't listened to that, you want to go back and listen to it. And she says, I'm so thankful for this episode because of my daughter's SPD, and that's sensory processing disorder. And if you'll remember, if, uh, or let me just give you some background for that show. It's a wonderful speech pathologist who called and said she was really having trouble with one of her little clients, and so she wants some suggestions and ideas. And this little girl is a little girl that runs away a lot, even when it's something that she seemingly enjoys. And so we talked a lot about that little girl and about her home and the, and her uh, just everything everything that I could think of to ask and gather information about her little life. And so. I went off and asked some questions about <laughs> if the running away was really related to what they were doing in therapy or if it was a bigger part of this little girl's overall interaction style. And so in doing that, we talked about what to the mom who's writing me the letter for today's show, I think um, just was a little bit, 
misunderstood. And so I want to read what this mom said and then address it because I know if this mom felt this way and I got this letter, and again, she, oh, what a sweet mom to send me this. And she's, you'll just hear in her, the rest of this, what she says, her, just her loving heart and how concerned she is about her daughter and how she's just doing everything she can to gather information. And again, if you're that kind of mom and that's why you're listening to that show, this show, this, you're the reason I do this show. You're the reason that I thought 10 years ago in 2008, hey, this will be a good idea. You're the reason that when my husband said to me, hey, you should do a podcast, and I said, what's well, a podcast? And then we kind of went on from there. You were exactly who I had in mind when I thought, you know, I'm going to answer these questions and share information as best I can because not everybody has access to this kind of information. And so, again, this show is for you and for therapists who work with moms just like you. And so in trying to achieve that balance between talking to an audience full of both different, very completely opposite set of priorities often between parents of late talkers and the therapists who work with them. And again, we're not always on opposite sides of the page, but sometimes we can hear the same information and a therapist is going to take a totally different slant on that than a parent would. And let me just say I've been on both sides of that. I've shared over and over how our oldest son had some pretty significant sensory issues and learning differences with his severe dyslexia. And so I've been on the opposite side of that as a parent. <laughs> so I've got some perspective on that, but I'm just, I'm just going to say that sometimes Sometimes we, even though we're all well-meaning, you know, sometimes our feelings can get a little bit hurt. So let me just read what this mom says. She says, I've been listening to your most recent podcast. Again, you know, she goes on to say, the little girl in this episode sounds so much like my daughter. I'll be trying to use some of these techniques with my daughter. However, it's not that the mother doesn't want to hear it. And I think one of us, the therapist on the last show, or it was probably me <laughs> who said, oh, is that mom just not, just, she just not want to hear it, when the therapist is sharing with her her concerns about her daughter. And so, again, that comment was probably more flippant that, it, that I meant it. And certainly, you know, being a mom too, I mean, boy, I remember all those meetings that I sat in for my son, those IEP meetings, and just my heart would break, and I would just leave in a crying mess every time. My husband had to always go with me to those meetings to, <laughs> to be the, you know, the stoic one and the one who didn't get so emotional. So I, I completely get where this mom is coming from, and I completely get where she's feeling like this other mother may be feeling like it too. And so she gets on to so eloquently say, we want, desire, and need answers for our babies. I am a mother to an only child. She has SPD and it shows tendencies of being on the spectrum. Mothers who have children that struggle with developmental delays worry about having other children because we're afraid of our babies not getting the attention they need. This part of the conversation seemed to me like it was kind of speech pathologist versus the mom, where the mom wasn't there to really talk about the issue. And then she says, I would hate to think that my speech pathologist would talk about our situation without first asking me why I might not be implementing these things. Maybe the mother is confused on how to try it. Maybe the mother is overwhelmed with undeserved guilt or drowned in continuous worry. And then she goes on to say, being a mom to a kid with developmental delays is hard. We want to protect our babies and make sure they're happy. And boy, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. And that is what all moms want for all kids. And again, I just want to say the reason that I'm reading this is to say, first of all, 
I think that therapist's heart was really in the right place. And I do not feel like from a mom's perspective and from a, a speech pathologist's perspective that she was really saying anything out of line about that mom. And so I think that so many of us are um, sensitive, and rightly so. And let me just say, even from, <laughs> remember last week on the show, I kind of joked about don't send me hate mail, and this mom even said, you know, in her sweet little letter to me, this is not hate mail, and it certainly was not. But we all can feel like sometimes when we're talking about issues that are so close to our hearts that um, we're just sensitive. We're just super sensitive. And, again, I've, I, you know, this is so funny. From my perspective, I've read blog posts about me, <laughs> social media posts about me. I've listened to podcasts where they are talking about me, and boy, is that hard. That's a terrible idea, by the way, especially if you are like me and a little bit on the sensitive side when you hear feedback that's not glowingly positive. But at the same time, we kind of have to take a step back and say, you know, this this therapist was really, really trying to solve a problem, and she was. And I think the reason she even talked about the family or made those comments is because I asked that question in context, saying, "Okay, does she run away all the time, or is it just with you?" Because that's an important piece of information. If the little girl had fantastic attention the rest of the day, my responses to her would have been totally different. You know, that would have been to the therapist saying, "Well, okay, this is on you. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Let's figure out how we can get her to." attend and stay with you like she does the rest of the day. And so me asking about those family routines, that was just to get some information and to so that we could really, really connect what the therapist was seeing with what interventions or what else she could do differently. So the mom does finish up, though, she with, you know, I love your podcast. Listen to the episode every day it comes out. Um, and, you know, again, she ends up with sending you much love. I hope you understand my side. And this is my response to say, I totally get your side. I have been there, not in the same exact situation, but certainly all of us as moms can relate to feeling like we just want the best for our kids. We're doing the best we can. And so many moms of children with developmental delays are completely overwhelmed. And so we as therapists need to recognize that and support that. I'll just tell you, too, sometimes after kids that I work with have gotten big um, diagnosed, a, a, an evaluation with a big diagnosis, sometimes I take a week or two off from therapy. You know, if if I feel like mom on the phone, she's calling me and crying her heart out, and, it, you know, she says I just can't do it this week, then I know, hey, this is not the time. We've got to back off a little bit. We've got to give her some space here to really process what's happened. If you go into a home and you're working with a parent and they say to you, I cannot do this, believe them. <laughs> Listen to them. They are saying, "This is too hard for me. I'm overwhelmed. I, you know, I, I can't, I can't do this yet." And we just have to meet a parent where they are, just like we meet kids where they are. And so I thought this is such a great example to read for therapists because we need to respond to this and we need to recognize this. And when a mother is saying, or when a parent isn't able to, a family not able to follow through with what we've suggested, we need to talk about that or at the very least realize, hey, there's more going on here. We need to pull this back and let me see how I can best help them. Let me see how we can talk about changing our recommendations or changing our strategies to really address what's going on. And so I wanted to, again, read this just so that I'm reminding therapists about that. And then as a parent, boy, try not to internalize <laughs> 
a lot of this and think, oh, what if my therapist called in about me, that kind of thing. That's not what the intent of this show is about. I, I am so here to help you. And I, I know that therapist from last week. I, I don't know her personally, but just from getting to talk with her and read her emails to me, that's her intention too. And so just wanted to kind of clear that up. All right, let's move on to the next question before I talk myself into an even deeper hole here. All right, this one's totally different. She says, I am not an SLP, so this may seem like a stupid question to you, but they simply don't focus on this as much as they should in related fields. And let me just say at the beginning of that, hey, I've heard it all. <laughs> no question is stupid to me. And if another therapist is going out of her way to say, hey, help me with this, this is an ABA therapist, tell me, tell me this rationale for this, I applaud you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this question. So it is not stupid. She says, my question is, once you've identified that a little friend that you're working with needs to work on social interaction as his first goal, do you just put everything else away and just play social games with him or her until you see a response? And then she says, are social games more of something you incorporate in as more of a little break in between things? As an ABA therapist, I see some kids for three hours at a time on a daily basis, and most of them need significant help with social interaction. But I can't seem to bring myself to do nothing but play social games with them for even just an hour. So I end up trying to incorporate it in like a transition from one toy to the next, even when I can see that the kid doesn't seem to notice me at all when we're playing with the toys, meaning he isn't just getting that much out of that kind of play with me. Am I doing something wrong? Should I just put all the toys away and do social games for at least an hour? What a fantastic question. And let me just say, it really depends on the child. There have been some children that, like she just said, when I realize a kid is not getting anything out of playing with toys with me or when it's worse, when it's combative or almost aggressive that we are playing and I make them so mad because I'm insisting that I play too and that they don't just leave me out and that they don't avoid me or try to escape from me or sometimes toys are a disaster <laughs> in a session and so for those kids I would say yeah that's what I do I just do social games pretty much the majority of the session now that's hard when you're first learning how to do it and let me just tell you I learned the hard way. I learned with kids that I just screwed it up week after week after week after week that I would think, okay, today we're going to play with blah, 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 and I'm working on da, 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 and we would not get anywhere for 30 minutes or so, and then I would think, well, you know, forget it. I'm just going to play. We're just going to jump on the bed, and then we're going to play Ring Around the Rosies, and then I'm going to do Ride a Little Horsey, and that's when the kid would give me the best response. And so... I started learning from my mistakes in that, hey, what if I do this like nearly the whole darn time? What would happen? And I just started getting incredible results with kids who were not giving me any kind of positive reaction when I was sticking to those more traditional therapy activities. And so it was hard, too. I mean, I remember being really worn out. I remember a couple little guys <laughs> – Zachary was one little boy's name. Uh, Savion was another little boy's name. I had all these kids kind of at the same time. And, again, this was probably, gosh, early 2000s, maybe 
even mid 2000s where I would, you know, sometimes I'm stubborn and have to learn the same lesson over and over and over and over. And life seems to present us those opportunities where if you don't get it right the first time, oh, guess what? You get another kid to learn it on if you're a therapist. And so I just really taught myself that even though it's this seems hard for me to be on my toes and think, what can I do if he runs over here? What kind of little interaction can I do? If he's rolling around on the floor about to cry, oh, can I grab the pillow and snuggle him with this pillow or kind of smush him with the pillow? And then when he gets up to run away, can we play getcha, getcha, getcha? And when he's over in the corner, kind of sort of settled in, is that a time that I'll do a little finger play? And he's sort of listening to me because he's a little calmer and I've got his full attention. And so, again, that kind of therapy is hard to learn how to do. And listen, you don't have to do it with every single kid. Not every single kid is going to have interaction issues to the level that you need to work on that for 45 minutes or one hour straight. And thank goodness. And guess what? Some kids that you work like this, work your heart out like that for a while, you get to the point that you can do other things. And then that's when I use that as more of a break. And so you've heard me, if you've listened to the show before, if you've taken one of my courses on DVD or read one of my therapy manuals, you've heard me talk about my move, sit, move, sit, move, sit philosophy, meaning that we move like a social game or something where we're up. But listen, guys, we're doing it together. I'm not, I'm not one to just let a kid have a quote-unquote break away from me. If it's therapy time, you know, it's therapy time. I don't sit and write, you know, notes for 10 minutes while he runs around the room doing whatever and then try to bring him back. That's impossible a lot of the time. And and that's not to say that you don't have quieter activities where you're not talking a lot, where you can give a kid a chance to kind of catch his breath and process without you wah, 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 overwhelming him with all your talking. But you're real purposeful about it and you're real intentional about it. Um, but you'll get to the point where with kids, even if you do the social games for long stretches of time, I mean, and for some kids who are really sensory seekers, I think about I have to do enough social games that I can get them regulated. I can get them to the point where they can sit down with me for two minutes, five minutes, oh, my gosh, ten minutes, which is an eternity for some children, and play with a toy together or complete if we're doing a structured teaching routine or um, read a book or have snacks. Snack time is a great thing to transition to if you have a kid with social games that you think, I cannot keep this up for this whole session. Snack time might be one of your sitting things that you do together and you do back up moving around and then your next little sitting thing might be a sensory activity where you're you know, you have a sensory bin that you've gathered some things, or it might even be something like playing in water in the sink, or, um, you know, if they like Play-Doh, or, a, a, again, a, a container of rocks or pebbles that you've put together, whatever. That might just be the sitting part where it's just a little sensory activity where they calm down, they regulate a little bit. They're still not completely with you, but it's much better than if you were trying to play with a toy because a lot of times, like this therapist said, she's just left out of that, and that is not as productive for her. So I hate to say something like it depends on the kid, but it really depends on the kid. <laughs> and if they have red flags for autism or if interaction is not um, really, really frequent and consistent, yeah, most of my efforts are directed toward social games. And, again, if I can't, if I feel like the toys are prohibitive, we do something else during that little part of the session where I might need a break. <laughs> 
need to sit down. Again, try snack time or a sensory-based activity, even or structured teaching, which are fast little cognitively-based activities. You're not doing a ton of language there. If you don't know about structured teaching, get my Is It Autism Part 2 uh, course because it talks about the 10 uh, leading strategies for children with red flags for autism when they're toddlers and preschoolers. And structured teaching activities is such a great uh, strategy or approach for helping a kid learn how to finish a play routine and learn, you know, that task completion part and participation part. And so, and it's really good too because those activities go fairly quickly. And even though you're not doing a lot of talking, they move so quickly and you're, you're addressing fine motor things and uh, like I said before, those cognitive-based activities, you're addressing all those other goals too. But you don't quite get as left out with uh, a toy because kids are really, really used to that. They're used to checking out and, again, escaping that interaction and avoiding that interaction. And we know that that's a core deficit of autism. And so some of those kids have really, they ha they've had so much experience and it's what they like to do. <laughs> it's just kind of shut down and do their own thing. So you almost have to break that up. So for some of those kids, you really can't use toys yet even though play is super, 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 super important, you just can't do it at the beginning. You've got you've to build some other skills first. And task completion and interaction are huge uh, for those kids. So I would recommend that you think about that. And when you can do social games and, and when you need to get that going, just, just do as much as you can. And again, it's a learning curve for a therapist. If you've never done that before, you may need some help getting those things going. Uh, Teach Me to Play With You is my best resource for that. It's a therapy manual. wrote it in 2010. It's so funny. Sometimes as we're shipping these or I'm just kind of walking through the office, I'll, uh, I'll look at the you know, book that's open or you know, something with printing or whatever, and I'll take a look at it, and I'll think, oh, I forgot all about that game. That game is so fun. And so get yourself some resources like that where you're not just depending on you know, two or three little games. I think I mentioned this in a show or two back, but Every therapist needs 10 to 15 social games that you can just play and play and play and play. And so if you only have five or six, that's going to get really, really old. So teach yourself some new social games and some new little songs and routines and some new cute little ideas so that you can have a big repertoire of things to pull from when you're trying to figure out what's going to work with the kid. Um, I really learned how to do this, too, from reading Giggle, Giggle Time, which is a really short book by Susan Odd Saunders, who is an educator. And then the circle time, uh, I'm sorry, uh, oh gosh, what am I trying to think? Uh, what is the name of that book? Oh, well, let me just move on. Hand and stuff is great for you to learn how to do people games is what they call that. Uh, floor time with Dr. Stanley Greenspan, all of his great work about how to really read a kid and get in there and get yourself included. So do some more reading with that. And because this person is an ABA therapist, she may not have as rich a background in social interaction. And let me just say, speech pathologists don't either. <laughs> and I'm really realizing this too as my daughter is a senior majoring in communication disorders and stuff. And you know, a lot of times in school, parents probably think that, you know, we're taught just hands-on therapy strategies all day, every day. No, you're not. In, in undergrad and grad school, you're taught a lot of theory, and we certainly get practice with that in our clinical experiences. But they don't do a lot of teaching you how to do what it is you're supposed to be doing. And so even as a speech pathologist, 
you may not have enough background in really the social interaction pieces you need. So get yourself some resources and then make yourself do it. Even if it's not comfortable for you, even if if you think, gosh, you know, I just I can't possibly play like this with a kid for 45 minutes, you've got mom there. You're getting mom to play with you, hopefully, or nanny or whoever is the whoever is the child's caregiver at that time, you know, that'll kind of break some of it up and make some of it easier too because you're doing the education piece. But even if you're seeing kids in a private practice setting like most of my work is, you still, um, you know, need to really, really focus and dig down and just kind of make yourself do it and make yourself get better and better and better because the more you do it, the easier it will become. So let me just kind of throw this in there too. That's, this is also how I key words, and I started thinking about this yesterday when I got another question from a therapist who said something in her email, I don't have it ready to read right now, but something in there said something like, I know I'm not supposed to work on talking with this kid, but that's all mom wants to do, and I can't get her to understand that I'm not ever going to cue a word with him. And that just sort of made me pause and think, oh boy, <laughs> I hope I haven't misled anyone when I'm saying we have to work on all these pre-linguistic skills and we have to work on all of the prerequisite skills and when we're looking at that big hierarchy of talking that you know we address social skills and then we address receptive language and cognition and then we move on to expressive language which might mean signs or pictures and you know eventually we get to words. Just because you're working on all that pre-linguistic stuff with imitation and play skills and turn taking and joint attention those are fantastic and you are certainly going to do that and that will be the bulk of your work. But especially when you have a parent who's a little almost obsessed with talking and, you know, they're coming for speech therapy after all. <laughs> and so some parents really don't buy into we're not he's not developmentally ready to talk yet and so they get a little bit frustrated if you never even try during a session to cue a word or prompt a word or however you want to think about that. I still am cueing words and prompting words. I can't even help it. Even from kids that I know aren't developmentally ready to talk yet, I'm still doing that and presenting that. And sometimes it really, one, because I can't help it, even though we're not focused on talking. Let's just say we're playing with an activity like, uh, let's, let's say we're blowing bubbles. And I'm still going to you know, pull the wand out and say, bubble, bubble, want some bubbles, bubble. And I may even say, tell me bubble or say bubble, even when I know the kid can't talk. And listen, that's enough to satisfy <laughs> parents who are hyper-focused on talking because they see that you're still trying. And sometimes I'll say to a parent, gosh, I'm still trying to really cue these words when I know in my heart and in my gut that he is not developmentally ready. Or I might say something at the end of the session like, you know, my clinical experience still tells me that we've got some pieces missing here and we have other things to work on before we're going to hear these words. And I know that if we just keep working on, you know, whatever it is, it might be social interaction, it might be receptive language, it might be, you know, building that attention piece. It might, you know, whatever your imitation uh, with actions during play, whatever your prerequisite pre-linguistic goal is, you know, I tie it in. I'll say, I know that if we keep doing this, he is going to have a much better chance of talking than if we don't do this at all. You know, please just trust me on this and, and follow my instincts here. And we're still going to keep trying. We're still going to keep hoping because our ultimate goal here is words but we've got to do this stuff first. And so, again, you're still 
helping a parent see by your own demonstration that, gosh, if he were going to talk, this would be the time. If he is ready, this is when he would say it, and he hasn't. And so it is kind of a reminder not only to you to stick to your premonition and, and what you know you should be doing, but it also lets mom know, hey, this is what we're working toward. We're not there yet because when he is there, he will do it. And let me just say, too, I've had some kids, and gosh, this is on video. I think it's in the Steps to Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers. And I just love this clip because it's uh, a mom, and she brought her little girl from, I, th I think they were from Michigan or somewhere. And so we're doing our thing, and it's the first day of the assessment. And I'm, I'm really, it might have even been the second day. And that's when I was doing a lot of you know, three-day, five-day intensive level kind of visits with kids. And I'm saying to the mom, and it's on video, you know, she's just not talking, and I know that if she would, she could. And then she belts out whatever word it was that I was cueing. We were playing with Mr. Potato Heads, and I think it was nose or something or teeth. And she started to say it, and the mom and I just sat there, and the mom starts crying, and I'm just in shock and so happy to be wrong and right at the same time because when kids are ready, they talk, and it's our job to get them ready. So, again, that's what you do. You kind of alternate between, okay, I'm going to cue this expressive stuff, even though I know that we're not quite there yet, with and mix it with all these other prelinguistic and prerequisite things that we need to work on. So I hope that made sense to you. That was loosely tied in. I hope that you can kind of connect the dots where I went with uh, the girl's question about social games to, you know, how do you work on something that you for something that's so for so long for, that's so hard, you just mix it in with other things. You mix it up a little bit because every kid has more than one thing to work on. All right, let's move on and do this next question. And this is a great question. It's from a mom. She has, says, "I have a speech delayed, 26 month old. She says less than 10 words, and she doesn't use them consistently." She doesn't play with toys that much unless an adult is paying attention to her. Instead, she tends to wander around carrying toys with her. And she goes on to say, I was reading storybooks, playing peekaboo, and using descriptive language, but it obviously wasn't enough. Your post, and she's talking about on the website, made it clear that I also need to, and she's so great, she lists all these things, a, speak slowly using single words or simple two- to three-word phrases. B, repeat the target word that I want her to learn to say about five times within one to two minutes. And let me just say the guideline for that. That's, from, that's an evidence-based practice. That's from Caroline Bowen, and it's for recasting. And she says that we need to target, say a kid's target word 12 to 18 times before we expect a response. And so that's the information that mom is using for that. She says, I also need to pause, counting silently to five in order to give her enough time to speak. She said, I need to do sing songs and do finger plays. And then E, I need to play word games with her, such as patty cake and hide and seek. And then she goes on to say that she said, that's what she's learned from the post. And then she goes on to say, we've enrolled her in daycare a couple times a week. So here are her questions. Is this enough <laughs> to help her learn to speak? Her next question is, or do I also need to play with her and her toys where I repeatedly work into play the targeted words that I want her to learn to speak several times in a minute or two along with pauses to give her opportunity when she's ready to say the word as opposed to my sitting on the couch using descriptive speech while I supervise her play. 
And then her third question here is, can you give me a guide as to how much time each day I should try and spend with my toddler uh, reading stories, doing finger plays, rhymes, and word games, and then also building language while playing with my toddler and her toys? So fantastic question here, and it's one that all parents want to ask you, even if they're not saying it like that, even if they're not saying, is this enough, or how much time, even if they're not laying out as beautifully as this mom did exactly what she's trying, and she did something else. She said, okay, I realized what I was doing wasn't enough, so now here's what I'm starting to do. Here's how I've tweaked it, and then she gets back to her loaded question, is this enough? Well, we don't know until she starts to make some questions, but what I can, or make some progress. We don't know what the answer to that question would be. But here's what I do know. <laughs> Research tells us that children, particularly those with interaction issues, and it sounds like that might be also a concern for this little girl because mom says she kind of wanders around doing her, you know, not really playing or doing much of anything purposeful unless somebody's interacting with her. Um, and that's just my assumption, too. I can't really find anything else that she says for that. But that's that she, this little girl probably is has red flags for this kind of thing, too. Research tells us that those kinds of kids need 20 to 25 hours a week of interaction before they're going to make any progress. Now, sometimes parents totally freak out about that when you tell them 20 to 25 hours a week, and so you have to really sort of break that down and say, okay, how much time is in therapy? How much time is in organized play? Now, some daycare, she said that they've enrolled her in daycare a couple times a week, and that's always a suggestion that doctors make to parents who are concerned about speech-delayed kids. And I guess for some kids that might be enough. But my own experience has been <laughs> that not all daycares and preschools are created equally. And if you're just going somewhere that's like a Mother's Day out where the, kid, where the teachers basically are just there for crowd control, meaning that they're not really doing anything interactive. They're just making sure that the children don't kill each other and that everyone is dry and clean and there's a little snack or something in the middle or lunch or whatever. That's not the same as a teacher who has taken the time to have a lesson plan and they have really structured times versus unstructured times so she's really interacting and thoughtful about what she's doing. And, and the purpose of some programs certainly is not that. They are just there as kind of babysitters or crowd control. And so you sort of have to think about that when you are making these kinds of recommendations to parents. And as a parent, you know, you can't just put your kid in any Joe Blow daycare and think it's the same as a quality program. And, and certainly programs in public schools who are, that are supposed to be educationally based and therapist run, sometimes those aren't quite as good as we would like them to be either. So you have to just really, and again, I'm not bashing those programs. You know, we all have different restraints on what we can and can't do, but you have to really, really look at the quality of that. And so looking at that 20 to 25 hours a week, most of that really is going to fall on that one-on-one -on -one interaction time with parents. And so that's what it's going to take. And so, and then sometimes parents will say, Laura, that's three hours a day. I can't do that. And I tell parents just as, as plainly as I can, well, let's just start with what you can do. Let's, you know, if that seems insurmountable to you, all right, let's just start for 30 minutes in the morning maybe where you're just doing one-on-one -on -one playtime, 30 minutes in the afternoon and 30 minutes at night. That's an hour and a half a day. That's probably an hour more than maybe you're realistically doing. And remember, too, that even times like snack time and bath time and um, if you're going to read a book before nap time or if you're just laying there singing songs or you're just – 
you know, really talking to her when you're in the car together or you're waiting in line and you've got that 10-minute wait at Walmart, those times add up too. If the parent is focused on the child and really not scrolling through their phone or trying to check email or whatever else all we parents do and have to do to get through the day, but think about those kinds of times too. And as a therapist, you need to really help parents understand what they can do and how they can make things like bath time and meal time and car time and all these other things more effective so that you can get more and more and more and more of that one-on-one -on -one interaction time because that's when kids are really going to make their best progress. And let me just say in the last thing about that question is you absolutely need to get on the floor. <laughs> and for some parents, you know, and I think I've said this in a course and I've probably said it on the show, you know, over the last 10 years, but when a parent gives me an excuse like, I'm too old, I'm too hurt, I'm too, you know, I had a mom one time say to me, look at me, I'm fat. <laughs> if I get on the floor, it's hard for me to get up. And, you know, my response is just me too. My back hurts, my knees hurt, and boy, has after hitting 50, it is a lot harder than it was when I was chasing kids around and going toe-to-toe -to -toe in my 20s and 30s and early 40s. But we've got to do it. And so it's, it's especially hard when you have a kid that's really, really active and you have physical limitations. You're just going to have to get creative. Again, a lot of your time might be in the bathtub where they're more confined. Or if they can tolerate sitting in a little high chair, if, if it's a kid who likes the booster seat and the table, oh my goodness, use it if they like it. But if they're a kid who needs a lot of movement or they're a kid like who really needs an adult right there with them, it's not going to be enough just to yell things from the couch. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to any parent either, again, especially those with physical limitations. I mean, I so get it. I've kind of made a joke about it. but. I certainly understand when parents have very real illnesses and injuries that prevent their physical participation, but just figure out a way to do it. Uh, sometimes you can just really be so captivating with your face and your voice that a kid can sit right beside you on the couch and you can play something together or in bed you can play something together or you know, if you can get yourself on the floor and they can you can kind of keep them contained in a little bit of an area or, or just be so fun that when they run away from you, they're going to want to come right back because, hey, mom is here and she is playing and this is too good to let go. Do everything you can to make yourself a fun, 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 responsive play partner. But the, the whole talking from the couch, uh-uh, that's really not going to get it for most of our kids. And, again, I'm not being... Uh, derogatory about parents who are using that. I'm just saying if it's not working, you're going to have to do something different. And so figure out a way to confine the space so that you are one-on-one -on -one and that she is including you. So that would be uh, my response to that. All right, I think this is the last one. I cannot believe I got through four questions in 45 minutes. I'm so happy. Um, a little victory on my part today for this therapist who seems to over-talk. Here's the last question, question number four. I'm a huge fan of you and your work. I have several questions to ask you, but I'll stick with this one simple one today. She says, I work in a school setting as a school-based SLP, and we're allotted $200 for the entire year to spend on various supplies. I know that you always suggest cheaper options and therapy materials to buy for therapy ideas. However, would you be willing to share how much you spend specifically for kids on your caseload? She says, I have a toddler at home and one new baby coming in March, which means I'd rather spend money on them, to be perfectly honest. Do you budget what you spend for therapy each month, or is it more sporadic? I'm asking you because I love to listen to your ideas on your podcast, and I read your website and emails every day. 
So, <laughs> let me just say, if you're in a school system and your budget is just whatever, that's your budget. That's your budget. Please remember, too, that your needs and what you're going to be able to do over the course of your career is going to look really, really different now. And when I was in my 20s and had three little kids at home, I did not spend as much on therapy supplies as I do now. And I've had this question a lot, which is why I'm addressing it on the podcast. People will say, I can't afford that. How do you have all these toys? How do you <laughs> How do you spend what you say you've spent on whatever kid? Or how did you – I looked at that whole teach system that you recommended in your autism course, and gosh, Laura, that's like $400, $500. I'm in private practice. Well, first of all, in private practice, you can write a lot of that off on your taxes as your supplies, so I certainly do that. And secondly, as your, as your income changes and your needs change, your budget for what you spend on therapy will change too. My point to answer this question too is just to say, hey, I'm not a school-based SLP with a budget. I you know, run my own company and can decide what I spend and what I don't spend. And secondly, I've been doing this a long time. So a lot of toys that I use in Therapy Tip of the Week videos or in videos that you'll see on my DVDs or in my courses and stuff may be 10 years old. And another thing is I have a propensity for hoarding, and that is okay with me. <laughs> I have some storage rooms with some toys and things and you know, an office where I keep all those things. So it's just going to be different based on where you are in your career and what your needs are and what your priorities are. So don't worry if you're in your 20s and you feel like you don't have anything and you're not getting this whole you know, inventory of toys. You will. You'll get there. So just save things. Get things uh, from consignment stores like Goodwill. I had a super cheap friend for a long time who taught me the value of Goodwill and other little, as as my kids call them, junk stores. You can get a lot of things from there. Sometimes parents would give me toys, and that would be great. I would save toys from my own children, and I make a lot of things too. And again, if you haven't looked at some of those little therapy tip of the weeks. There's an old one from 2012 when we first started doing them about homemade toys, and I've done some podcasts about homemade cognitive activities. Scroll back through some of those things and get some ideas because a lot of times you can take 10 bucks and make an activity, and gosh, you're going to look up, and in five years you're still using it. So think about what you can do to make some solid investments and then save, save, save all your toys <laughs> and your activities as best you can to recycle and reuse. A lot of times I'll think, you know, I'm seeing a kid, and I'll be working on goals, and I'll think, where is that toy? I haven't seen that in three or four years, and I'll go dig it out, and it's just perfect for what I want to do with the kid, even though I haven't used it in a long time. So as your career progresses, you'll gather more things, and you'll be able to a lot more resources and get a little bit more creative. Some therapists I know sort of share toys, and some programs certainly have a lending bank where everything's kind of pulled together and pulled together, and you can all borrow from that. That's another idea, another little cooperative idea that if you don't have that in your area, you may think about starting if you have the space for that. But yeah, we hoarders are. <laughs> Don't have as many problems with that because we just save everything and find a way to use everything. So I just wanted to address that. And just remember, too, over time, you're gonna, that, that's not going to be as much of an issue. You're just starting your career and your family. And you'll look back in 30 years and have spent more and figured out ways to do more with less than you ever thought was possible. All right, I cannot believe that we addressed four different topics in 44 minutes. What a great 
um, use of time there. I hope that this format, uh, I'm not going to use it every week for every show, but it certainly fit those for today. Hey, if you have any comments, back, hear it, except for your hate mail, of course. <laughs> But otherwise, send those to Laura at teachmetotalk.com, and I will be glad to address your topic as well. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.